The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk every week about the transformations that can come from loss. I'm so grateful to have you here with me, and I hope you'll go to my host page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Today I'm here with Reverend Dina Joseph. Dina is a California licensed marriage and family therapist who has specialized in traumatic grief for 35 years. In her 50s, she became a hospital chaplain to more comfortably integrate her interest in spirituality with her psychological work. She currently works as the chaplain for a large hospital's palliative care service, addressing the emotional and spiritual needs of the seriously ill and their families. She is an ordained Buddhist minister and pastoral caregiver in the Theravada lineage and is board certified as a Buddhist chaplain by the Association of Professional Chaplains. Besides caring for patients and families, who are receiving palliative care in a hospital setting. Dina is passionate about education and has worked with numerous groups in hospitals and nonprofits on issues of resilience and sustainable practice in high-loss work environments, including oncology and ICU units, physicians in training programs, and hospice programs. Welcome, Dina. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm uh, happy to be here, too. Yeah, you know, we could. I could let the listeners know that you're you're a dear friend, and that uh, when I began to plan the show, I really wanted you to be on because I think you have so many important things to say about how losses and illnesses and and uh, traumatic experiences can lead to growth. So, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. You know, I'd like to start by asking if you can talk some about chaplaincy and palliative care, because I'm not sure all my listeners will be completely clear about what those are. Okay. Um, well, I'll start with palliative care, which is a relatively new specialty in medicine that basically um, you can receive palliative care primarily in hospitals, but more and more in outpatient settings as well. And it's a branch of medicine that addresses the physical, emotional, spiritual, cognitive, and familial needs of people with serious illness. Mm-hmm. Um, often it's conflated with hospice, but it's not the same thing as hospice. You can receive palliative care at any point along the illness trajectory if you have a significant illness. 
Mm. And um, it's multidisciplinary, including physicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, psychologists, and chaplains. And that's where I come in, um, in my hospital work. I function as a chaplain. And um, again, this is a change in modern healthcare in the last 10 years. Uh, the spiritual needs of the ill are being more and more recognized as a, a significant source of distress and also a significant potential source of coping and help for people who are facing illness, whether it's the patients or the families. So uh, chaplains are very much part of the care team in a hospital setting, uh, caring for people who are seriously ill. So that sounds like a, a kind of a holistic approach to somebody's illness, where they kind of are one place and, and have access to everything they need? Is it, that It is a holistic model. The medical model really is biologically based, and the palliative care model, we call it biopsychosocial spiritual. <laughs> so uh-huh. you know, trying to really care for the whole person and recognize that there are just many, many dimensions of healing. And even if a person cannot have a cure, they can still have a healing um, on many levels. Hmm. And and are there ever any um, difficulties with all those different disciplines coming together and, and working well for the patient? Well, I think in any situation where you have multidisciplinary teams working together, you have the potential for conflict. But mm-hmm. palliative care is... It's just kind of um, part of the ethos of the um, philosophy of care. And so people who are drawn to it tend to be people who want to work in these um, team interdisciplinary uh, settings. Um, And it's a great source of really delight and um, joy to work with people from multiple disciplines in a very collaborative and respectful way. Mm, mm. So it's more an enhancement than a difficulty. It, sounds it, like. it sure seems to me like it should be the standard of care for all medicine. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, most, most of the people who we get consulted for end up being very appreciative of having this extra layer of support that palliative care providers um, are able to oversee for them. And so can you tell me some of the things that you might offer in the chaplaincy part of of this overall picture for patients and their families? Certainly. Um, our team rounds on our patients every day. So as part of the team, I will go and visit every new patient along with members of the team of these other disciplines I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then um, I will, as part of that initial meeting, get a sense um, in in, uh, medical language that would be called an assessment, but get a sense of what the emotional and spiritual needs of the patients and families are because we see the whole unit of care, not just the patient, as our patient. So... Mm. If there's uh, many times we'll have patients who are nonverbal or um, not conscious, but we're still uh, looking at them and assessing the patients, but also getting a sense of where the families and the family is defined as whoever the patient has around them who is a significant part of their care team in the Mm. hospital setting. So 
um, we're making an assessment and then I will almost always go back on my own where you mentioned I do a lot of teaching. So a lot of the way teaching happens in a hospital setting is students shadow um, members of the team. So I might have a medical student or a nursing student or a chaplaincy student or a young doctor um, finishing up training, going with me back to see the patient and or family. And then I'll provide what is needed. So sometimes that will be a conversation and a counseling session around some of the losses that the family or patient are going through. Um, Sometimes it's what we call psychoeducation, where we're actually answering questions about what to expect in the dying process, what to look for, Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes if the family or patient has a known faith tradition that's important to them, and that would be something that I can find out from either the record or from talking with them, Um, I will provide prayer um, readings or other religious um, liturgy or sacraments, depending on the faith tradition and desires of the family and patient. And sometimes I will... Um, provide song. We have a music program at our hospital, but I like to sing and I'll often sing at the bedside. Um, And I've got a whole repertoire of sort of non-denominational songs and prayers that I use um, that are sources of comfort to patients. So that's some of the range. Um, There's a lot of other kind of things that can happen in terms Mm -hmm. of bringing in clergy from outside communities if the person really wants somebody from their own tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my favorite things to do is what I, what is known as legacy work, which is to help particularly parents of children. Um, and the parent is going to be dying at a young age to create some kind of legacy document for those children. Mm. So it might be a video, it might be a dictated letter and we'll usually work with the person to create some kind of document that then we give back to them that they can give to their family member either then or have arranged to be given to them at a significant moment in their life later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And would that sometimes maybe include videos or letters, that sort of thing? Exactly. Uh-huh. Those are the two modalities we mostly use. I want to circle back. You said you sing. Do you also uh, – I think I – heard from you once that you use some recorded music sometimes depends on the patient's needs but absolutely we have a a patient currently who used to be a blues singer she's beyond being able to sing but she can still listen and so Mm -hmm. we provide the um, headphones and dvds of her favorite music so even though she's in an icu and no longer Um, very interactive, she can still indicate that she likes to have her music sometimes. So we will provide the music of um, a patient's and family's choice if they don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Music's very powerful in that setting. I would imagine. Um, Maybe this would be a moment to, to share the piece that you mentioned to me before the show as an example. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, This is the 23rd Psalm by Bobby McFerrin. 
and I'll just play a little bit of it. That's so beautiful. You know, it does have the, um, it uses the feminine pronoun for, uh, to express uh, the idea of the divine. And uh, again, I wouldn't put that out there with somebody who wasn't open to that perspective. Sure. <laughs> Might sing that, um, you know, changing it to he for somebody who was of a more traditional belief. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that that he changed that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish we had time for the entire thing. I'm sure it's all very beautiful. Um, I'm really getting a sense of. I'm imagining myself in a room with you doing this work, and 
the word that's coming to my mind strangely is sort of cozy and intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, does that fit your experience? I think it's incredibly intimate. I think being privileged to be part of families' uh, experience of not just the dying time, but just the whole experience of significant illness, which of course we all know is rife with multiple levels of loss, um, is really a sacred thing. And I feel so privileged to be welcomed into people's lives at such a vulnerable and often for people kind of broken-hearted, but broken, open-hearted place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very, try to be extremely tender toward people in, in these times. And, and I do think it does, it's communicated and create, we do, we are able to create a, quality of connection and warmth and meaningfulness in our interactions that can be kind of rare in a hospital setting, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I also get the feeling talking to you that um, you have sort of a, I guess I want to say a mission to impact the medical care system more in this direction. Would that be accurate? (laughs) One person at a time. One person at a time. <laughs> I, and one I try not to be too grandiose <laughs> in my in my ambitions here, but um, healthcare, as you and everybody else really probably knows, is both kind of a glorious thing and and also a, a pretty broken system in so many ways, and um, and culturally you've probably already dealt with this on the show. There's a lot of sort of phobic, what what I think of as grief phobia and death phobia and just, you know, tremendous fear and ignorance and misunderstanding and a whole bunch of things mixed in around these issues. And so people really struggle often alone and when they don't need to and um, knowing how to get, the proper support for these times, I think, begins with recognizing one's right to be supported around these very serious situations. And um, yeah, I do feel very passionate about it. I think most people involved in hospice and palliative care last in it because they feel that sense of passion passion. or what from a theological perspective, is called a calling. And I don't know if that's a familiar word to you or others, but, you know, yeah. that it, it speaks for itself, a vocation, a sense yes. that this is, this is what you're on the planet to do. To do. Guess what? We've come to our first break. <laughs> and when we come back, I want to talk about what led you to this work. And during the break, listeners, you can go to my homepage and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn. You could also go to my website. It's www.weatheringgrief.com. And you can get in touch with Dina through me. So uh, any way there is to contact me, you can also get in touch with her. We'll be right back.
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at the Good Grief page at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. We're back with Dina Joseph, an end-of-life and palliative care chaplain and also a marriage and family therapist working with traumatic grief. Um, You know, some people, Dina, might find it hard to imagine being called to work with dying people, traumatic grief, illness, Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> it's really a, a conversation stopper. Quite yeah. A yeah. yeah, but you were, and I want to know more about that. What in your life or experience or hard wiring or soft wiring called you to this work? You know, I'm 65 now, so um, I've been in the work world for 40 years and you get to have a bit of a perspective, I think, over that trajectory of such a long arc of work life. And when I began, I in both my careers as a marriage and family therapist and as a chaplain, I kind of fell into it. I didn't really uh, think growing up, oh, I'm going to be a therapist, I'm going to be a chaplain. I never <laughs> had either thought. Um, I did, I think, relevant to sort of your overarching topic for this series, I did experience a number of significant losses before I was even an adult. Um, I lost my best friend when I was six who died in an accident. I lost my uncle um, through suicide as a pretty young elementary age child. 
I lost my grandfather, same age group, and then my father, who I was extremely very close to, um, passed away when I was a young teenager. So I was certainly, I felt in certain ways branded by that experience of so much loss as a child, childhood mm-hmm. loss. And I, I think that absolutely led me kind of willy-nilly in a really not a very conscious way, but led me into the whole field of psychotherapy and counseling with a specialty in grief pretty young. Um, I became licensed in my early 20s. I mean, my mid twenties, um, and that that was really propelling me. And my my model of of therapy really was pretty much whatever people were bringing in, no matter what the topic. It had grief as part of it, mm-hmm. so it really worked for me as a as a way to approach therapy. Even though I I like all the fancy theoretical perspectives, but it, in the end, it all just seemed to boil down to loss and how you'd cope with loss and how you mm-hmm. grow from loss. So. That's really been my worldview for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And then um, in my 50s, I, I, you mentioned that I was um, an ordained Buddhist minister, and that is because that has my, been my primary spiritual practice, has been uh, Buddhist meditation. Again, I started that as a teenager um, and have stayed with that my whole life. So I, I really felt that there were things out of my spiritual life and practice that were relevant that I really didn't have a a way to access and bring into a purely psychological paradigm such as psychotherapy. Mm. It informed me, obviously, in terms of my values and kind of my worldview as a therapist. But um, so I just kind of backed into, again, the the training to become a chaplain with no idea about whether I would ever use it professionally, but I did, was very drawn to um, training, which is essentially applied theology is what I see pastoral care um, as that paradigm. So, Mm -hmm. and I just fell in love with it. Three weeks into it, I said to one of my teachers, this is for me, this just feels so much like the right thing to be doing at this stage of my life. So, and then I was just very fortunate when that training finished, which is a very rigorous training as well, that I was able to get a job in exactly the right place that I wanted to be, which was palliative end of life care, mm-hmm. which is really where I thought my counseling background and my spiritual proclivities, if you will, you know, could come together in a way that would be meaningful to me and useful to other people. Mm-hmm. So I can look back and I see, oh, there's an arc here. There's a way yes. it connects. And the way it connects for me really is, I don't think of myself these ways too much, but ultimately if I look at that arc and as I think I will be remembered as a person who has been motivated by a a call to be a healer, mm. that's not a very popular sort of modern world but, uh, word, but I do think it defines my my arc in life. So that might go in the psychological direction, it might go in the spiritual direction, probably other directions too, but it's all uh, formed around that idea of healing. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
I have to think, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about transformation that comes from loss. And obviously, because I'm talking about that every week, it seems to me that that's a kind of decision point. Are you going to engage with your losses and transform them into something or are you not? Do, do you experience it that way? Well, I think you can look back and see it that way. And maybe there's some kind of nodal moment in one's grief because there's there does seem to be these bleak moments, deep, deep despair when one is grieving that seem to have a choice embedded in them. Mm-hmm. For me, it was more, I really feel like I was sort of pushed along and mm-hmm. stumbled along and that it wasn't very conscious, but sure. that I can certainly look back and say, there is no question that particularly, you know, having such a significant history of childhood loss, which I think is a particular kind of loss that profoundly impacts your entire life. From it, it, I certainly find myself speaking to the patients of children where the most patients with young children suffer incredibly with the fear and distress of not being there for their kids. And, mm-hmm. and I can look at them and just share my experience. I've been, I was a person who experienced a lot of childhood loss and that's why I'm sitting here with you today. I mm-hmm. mean, I think the connection, like there, I really don't think I'd be here if it weren't for that. Yes. And, and sort of modeling the possibility that um, grief can transform into something useful and meaningful and um, healing for everybody. And I think it's very comforting to people for me to say that. And I, and I like the uh, aspect you're bringing in, that is, which is that you may not know you're doing it when you're doing it. <laughs> you know, you you're, just, you're just <laughs> responding desperately to your pain or you yes. know, trying yes. to get from one day to the next. But uh, you can know you're being transformed when it's you're being worked on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little too close to the lines on your on the palm yeah. of your hand or something. <laughs> uh huh. Do Do you ever get overwhelmed in your work? I, you know, I know that you have a real focus on sustainability, and I'm wondering how you sustain yourself. Uh, because well, I think you know, it's inevitable that. People in this kind of work, really, I, I teach it as a really an ethical imperative to develop the skills to monitor and be aware of one's inner state. It's always much harder if you have something going on in your personal life that mimics something going on in your professional life. And as you're speaking about in this show, obviously loss is ubiquitous. It's everywhere all the time. Um, I think it's estimated that one out of five or six Americans is in a state of active grief at any given moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it's often um, privatized. So we don't know. You can be sitting on the BART and there's 200 people in the car. There's 40 of them who are going through a significant loss right mm-hmm. then, but you wouldn't mm-hmm. know it from mm-hmm. the ground. So, you know, it's it's something that um, we, 
everybody who's working in a high-loss work environment, and that's not just obviously end-of-life care, there's a lot of other professions like this, um, really need to learn skills to manage the inevitable overload that's going to happen. So I love teaching that because I think it's sort of giving a life preserver to people in the sense of preventing burnout. Um, But yes, even I have felt burnout. And all the clinicians I have worked with, I always, when I teach, you know, ask who's had burnout and you know, it's always a very significant number. I think the research is at least 50% of healthcare professionals have experienced burnout at any given time. So Mm -hmm. it's a huge issue. And the good news is there are tried and true methods of managing, uh, working with it and um, sustaining yourself and, and having uh, staying power over years and years, but you just need to learn what those are and practice them. Is that kind of a set list or is it very individual? Well, I can tell you the list if you're interested. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Working in a healthcare environment, I'm sure um, your listeners who work in those environments will recognize that um, Healthcare is really being driven more and more by what they call the evidence. So if you teach anything in a healthcare setting, you've got to have the evidence. So what I teach to the young doctors and nurses and um, chaplains is basically here's the evidence for the best, what we call best practices and sustainable Mm. care. So the number one best practice is actually sharing of some kind and reflecting on your experience. And reflection can take the form of talking about it with somebody or writing about it or doing art with your experience as a focus. But basically to reflect is, is to think about again and process when you're not in the, in the heat of the situation. Difficult, moving, surprising, challenging um, circumstances that you've encountered in your work setting. And to think about them and process them again with an eye to what you learned from them. Mm. So this is, you know, this is the number one best practice in high loss work environments is to have a chance to give nurses and doctors the time and support to actually reflect on these things. And, you know, I often teach these little seminars for people and I'll set that up and we'll start. You can see a lot of rolling eyes, like, really? We got to think about it. We got to write about <laughs> it. We got to talk about it. And then we start the timer and, like, you know, pens to paper and people, like, can't get enough of it. Mm. So I think there's a great, great need to do this, but not. Um, and there are other best practices, but that's the best one. I love how, how um, you've kind of worked it into a medical model uh, so that it can be heard. You know, that that's right. what I get from what you're saying, that there's proof for this one, folks, you know, <laughs> talk. Skillful, skillful means, that's called. Yes, indeed. And then, you know, the, the other side of the proof is, you know, the impaired clinicians, the work people 
you know, getting ill, the need to take time off from work, making mistakes, all the Mm -hmm. things that, you know, we know are on the deep end of burnout if people don't address it. So that's also highly motivating. Yeah. I <laughs> this share could that. happen to you. Huh? I share the evidence for that as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and maybe do you kind of train people what to look for in themselves so they catch yeah. it earlier? Right. So I will add the opening question, has anybody felt, you know, been burned out and, you know, three quarters of the room raises their hand. And then I'll, the next question is, how do you know? Uh-huh. And try to gather the wisdom from the group. But, you know, inevitably, they have all the answers very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very common to have a lot of irritability as part mm-hmm. of burnout. And I do think, you know, apropos of our topic of grief and the transformations of grief, um, people are just, they have a lot of buildup of loss and grief. And in the medical setting, People are human. They feel those losses. They're impacted by them. But there's not very many venues um, where it's okay to really acknowledge. I really feel sad that that person is so sick, or that mm-hmm. that child's going to be left without a parent, or mm-hmm. you know, the normal and natural grief that humanizes us and helps us to have empathy for other people gets bottled up. And so it just doesn't take very much for that to become evident to people when they're given the safe environment to look at it. Yeah. After the break, I really, you mentioned a minute ago um, that part of talking about it is uh, what I guess I would call redeeming it or talking about what you've gotten from it, what you've learned. And after the break, that's really what I'd like to talk more about, um, what you've learned sitting at death's door. Um, So let's go to the break and come back and talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, Again, in these few minutes, you can go to the Good Grief homepage. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, go to my website, which is linked there, and you can reach Dina through any one of those means. I will definitely get the message to her. Be back in a few minutes. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? 
Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word TALK RADIO to 96362. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today I'm here with Dina Joseph, and we're talking about her work as a traumatic grief counselor and end-of-life and illness chaplain. And uh, I want to get to kind of what Death's Door has taught you. What, What have you learned from all the people that you've sat with thousands as I understand it as they're facing serious illness and death it's a beautiful question Cheryl thanks for going there Um, and I could talk for a long time (laughs) it's a wide wide range Um, just as every life is unique I think every dying process is both unique and universal at the same time Mm -hmm. and um, I do see it and hold it as a time of transformation with the potential for transformation. Um, That implies first that people are, their symptoms are well managed so that somebody's not suffering horrible pain or other um, intractable symptoms, which can really take up center space. Um, So we, part of the mission of palliative care is to see that people have, all of their symptoms well managed. But given that blessing, that mm-hmm. hope that that will be our all for every person, um, because it is our right to have, have that kind of quality care at the end of life, then the possibilities of the end of life for a transformative or healing experience, I think are, are the situation is ripe for that. Mm. And, um, there are a lot of people who've done a lot of work on this over the years, and I will just be kind of sharing other people's perspectives that I have found to be true um, in answer to this question. It's not original thought, but um, one thing that you do find is it's really rare for people to focus on their work. Occasionally, you'll find people for whom their work is their most important thing um, that they want to think about and talk about and um, complete in the context of end of life, by far the vast, vast majority, I'd say over 90% of people when asked, how do you want to spend the time you have remaining, will say, 
I want to be with my loved ones, whoever they define those loved ones to be. Mm. And, and so I think the biggest thing that, that palliative care clinicians get to benefit and learn from the experience of people who are just closer to the end than we are at this sure. moment, as best mm-hmm. we know. Um, one of my favorite lines from a palliative care clinician is, we're the less broken taking care of the more broken. Mm. And that <laughs> we see ourselves in the bed and that, mm-hmm. that that's part of how we can make that intimacy that you were talking about earlier is mm-hmm. that we don't make the separations. Oh, here's that sick person who's dying and here I am over on the other side and that's not happening to me. It's happening to all of us all the time. Mm-hmm. Every day, one, one day closer, right? Even yes. though we don't know the end date. So um, in that context, providing a safe space for people to explore what is important to them. Um, almost all the time, it's family, friends, um, community, a sense of connection, um, and how to support people in having those connections right through to their end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as clinicians, we kind of say, well, if it's true for them, then I guess it must be true all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Maybe it's true for me. <laughs> right. So I think that's a really significant takeaway for all of us um, working there. And um, then obviously there's some other things. If there's brokenness, what we in theology call brokenness, if there's some ruptured relationships or um, things that people have regret about or guilt or remorse that they need to make right, um, people they need to offer amends to or ask forgiveness from, that can really weigh on a person um, in the end-of-life period. And so kind of taking care of business um, mm-hmm. on an emotional and spiritual level for many people if they have the time and the support to do that. And it doesn't necessarily mean face-to-face with people. Sure. They could be long gone. But sort of doing that inner work of um, making oneself whole, I think, is another thing we see that is very important. So you can extrapolate to daily life from that, like kind of keep, keep your side of the slate clean uh-huh. as best you can. Stay so it's hurt. kind of a, a living morality that, that we see at work. Um, and then finally, I think understanding your life so that many people engage in what we call life review and that when I mentioned it just even in talking about my own vocation, the sort of sense of the narrative arc of one's life. And mm-hmm. so kind of like you see this, this natural introspection that often um, goes with the end of life. And so, again, to take away like reflect on your life sometimes and get a sense of your direction and what is enduring and your values and how you want to be living your life now that is uh, in alignment and has integrity with those values Mm -hmm. that you see this um, very much an issue at end of life. Those are some of the takeaways. There's so many. I'm, I'm connecting what you're saying with the way that I perceive Buddhist practice in terms of staying present. Uh-huh. You know, it's very, very right now what you're saying. Right now, keep your relationships clean. Right now, be with your loved ones. Right now, um, you know, review your life. See what its meaning is. 
Well, that's that's the extrapolation to us, right? To a person yes. who's ill or family members that right now becomes so big that that's really you see this with serious illness. That's people get catapulted into the present, and mm-hmm. the future really gets truncated, and the mm. past doesn't matter that much. So <laughs> there you are, and I think for people who are not yet ill. <laughs> or facing end of life, um, there appears to be more choice about where you live in terms of the time frame of, you know, preoccupy with the past or um, sure. the future. And yes, I do think that the teaching of the dying often is uh, be here now and be here and live as fully as you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm remembering that you were telling me about uh, when we were preparing for this, I was asking you, if there were any stories you could share about particular um, patients you've worked with. And I think you brought up a, a young man you worked with. Uh-huh. Can you share that story? Um, well, that was a very powerful um, experience for me because after he w- made was able to negotiate the system to say to his family and the um, providers that, he did not want any more aggressive treatment. He had uh, done several at that point and was pretty tired of doing them. And you you do have a choice whether you want to keep doing them until you die or you don't. And he really didn't. So he had to negotiate that juncture. But as soon as he had kind of pushed back and said no more treatment, he pretty much fell upon me and said, now what? What do I do now? This was a young man who had no experience of end of life, um, even in his extended family, hadn't been seen very much um, death or dying. And it just was so poignant because it, you know, this part of life in some cultures is so much integrated into what young people learn as they grow up. Mm -hmm. And it would just, he really literally said, what do I do? Mm -hmm. How to die? And no so idea, huh? He, had, he really didn't, and he really wanted guidance, and that was beautiful, and that is a lot of how I do see my role as kind of a shepherd or a midwife or, mm-hmm. you know, just I do have that some information I can share and some perspectives and some hopefully uh, insight into the process. So we just sat down, and and I was able to say, well, here are the things that we understand are really can be really valuable, meaningful things to do with your end of life. And we talked about cleaning up, taking care of business. We talked about saying goodbye, um, making amends, expressing love and appreciation. And, and then we talked about the spiritual dimensions of end of life and the potential for a depth of wisdom and insight and understanding and love that um, some people are able to, experience in this time and Mm -hmm. he was one of those who was just able to let go in such a way that um, his dying time was really a profound time of connection and love Mm. connection and love with his family members as well I'm assuming that somehow they were able to go with him he led the way but very mm-hmm. much they they had the perspective that he was able to show them what he needed and by extension in fact what they needed uh-huh 
they, in the end, I think, felt very whole and healed in that process. I, I remember Stephen Levine saying once, you can tell a good death when everyone around the person is healed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And it makes me think of that, that that's, that's a potential for uh, people around the person to really have their lives altered in that way. Very much. And, I, and as I said, in terms of palliative care, I, I really appreciate that perspective that, yes, there's one person dying in the bed, but there are a whole web, of, there's a whole web of connection around that person and their dying is going to ripple out and impact every one of those people in greater or lesser ways. And um, we know that the experience of the dying person and how that goes and whether, I don't, I don't so much like to use the word good death, but um, whether it it has an integrity and a wholeness in it. Yes, that's that's um, what I mean by that. I'm sure yeah. that's what he did too. <laughs> yeah, um, that it, it actually impacts the bereavement process of the people around that person in the bed mm-hmm. and that their bereavement, and this again speaks to good grief, I think, that um, bereavement has within it all these same potentials for going off the rails or being transformative and what supports it to be transformative in part is for the person who's dying to have a sense of wholeness and completion in their dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know, for instance, that a lot of people, family members of uh, people who die in intensive care units have uh, traumatic PTSD following mm. that. And it, it, you know, it's really hard to hang out in an intensive care unit and not, get traumatized. It's just such a, mm-hmm. such a uh, difficult environment to be in. And a large number of uh, Americans anyway, in their dying period, end of life period, end up in intensive care units. Mm-hmm. We have just a few minutes left, unbelievably. And I wonder if there's anything you'd like to end with uh, in terms of um, Sending the the listeners forward um, towards some of these things themselves. Well, yeah, I appreciate very much the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I think there is a movement going on um, in Europe and in this country known as the Death Cafes. Mm. And um, it's really mm-hmm. a grassroots movement of people who are recognizing the need for conversation just to have this whole topic be open as opposed to behind closed doors and wait until something dire is going on and for Mm -hmm. you or a family member before you start talking about it. Yes. I think the conversation itself about these matters that we all have a lot of inherent wisdom about death and dying and grief and loss and that I think your show and your perspective is exactly in that spirit. And so my work is in that spirit. Like let's tap into this wisdom and use it for our living, not just for our end of life. Mm -hmm. I did did just recently go to my first death cafe and it was fabulous. Yeah. And (laughs) And in that regard, right. Of like opening up a conversation that is taboo in some way. Yes. And if you can talk about that, it's kind of intimate, in other ways too, because you've opened the door to a very deep conversation. So I'm absolutely with you on that. 
Yes. Yeah. I think I think to tap, you know, my takeaway is the wisdom is in each of us to this is part of the plan. We're all mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. all mortal. We're all going to be ill and die. Yes. And and, um, and so, you know, to learn as much as we can about this before it's our time, I yes. think all in our best interest. I wonder if you could end our hour with a prayer. Something okay. maybe you share with, with patients. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, those of you familiar with the Bible will recognize that this is a revision of um, the benediction that's in Deuteronomy. And I use this with many, many patients, secular or religious. Um, and I change the wording a little bit. So, um, and I wish this to you, Cheryl, and to everyone who's listening. May love bless you and keep you. May love shine her face upon you and be gracious unto you. And may you know love's promise of tender mercy, kindness, and peace. Mm. So be it. And also to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. I enjoyed this more than I can even say. Thank you. Um, You can reach Dina by calling or writing me. uh, And you can find every way to do that at my host page. Um, That's also where you can find links to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.